Chapter Four of Susan B. Anthony by Alma Lutz. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four A Purse of Her Own. The next important step in winning further property rights for women, it seemed to Susan, was to hold a woman's rights convention in the conservative capital city of Albany. This was definitely a challenge, and she at once turned to Elizabeth Stanton for counsel. Somehow she must persuade Mrs. Stanton to find time, in spite of her many household cares, to prepare a speech for the convention and for presentation to the legislature. As eager as Susan to free women from unjust property laws, Mrs. Stanton asked only that Susan get a good lawyer, and one sympathetic to the cause, to look up New York State's very worst laws affecting women. She could think and philosophize while she was baking and sewing, she assured Susan, but she had no time for research. Susan produced the facts for Mrs. Stanton, and while she worked on the speech, Susan went from door to door during the cold, blustery days of December and January 1854 to get signatures on her petitions for married woman's property rights and women's suffrage. Some of the women signed, but more of them slammed the door in her face, declaring indignantly that they had all the rights they wanted. Yet at this time a father had the legal authority to apprentice or will away a child without the mother's consent, and an employer was obliged by law to pay a wife's wages to her husband. In spite of the fact that the bloomer costume made it easier for her to get about in the snowy streets, she now found it a real burden because it always attracted unfavorable attention boys jeered at her and she was continually conscious of the amused critical glances of the men and women she met she longed to take it off and wear an inconspicuous trailing skirt but if she had been right to put it on it would be weakness to take it off by this time elizabeth stanton had given it up except in her own home convinced that it harmed the cause and that the physical freedom it gave was not worth the price i hope you have let down a dress and a petticoat she now wrote susan the cup of ridicule is greater than you can bear it is not wise susan to use up so much energy and feeling in that way you can put them to better use. I speak from experience. Lucy Stone, too, was wavering, and was thinking of having her next dress made long. The three women corresponded about it, and Lucy, as well as Mrs. Stanton, urged Susan to give up the bloomer. With these entreaties ringing in her ears, Susan set out for Albany in February 1854, to make final arrangements for the convention. On the streets in Albany, in the printing offices, and at the Capitol, men stared boldly at her, some calling out hilariously, Here comes my bloomer, 
she endured it bravely until her work was done but at night alone in her room at lydia mott's she poured out her anguish in letters to lucy here i am known only she wrote as one of the women who ape men coarse brutal men oh i cannot cannot bear it any longer even so she did not let down the hem of her skirt but wore her bloomer costume heroically during the entire convention determined that she would not be stampeded into a long skirt by the jeers of albany men or the ridicule of the women however she made up her mind that immediately after the convention she would take off the bloomer forever she had worn it a little over a year never again could she be lured into the path of dress reform the albany register scoffed at the feminine propagandists of women's rights exhibiting themselves in short petticoats and long-legged boots nevertheless the convention aroused such genuine interest that evening meetings were continued for two weeks featuring as speakers ernestine rose antoinette brown samuel j may and william henry channing the young unitarian minister from rochester and when the men appeared on the platform the audience called for the women susan could not have asked for anything better than elizabeth stanton's moving plea for property rights for married women and the attention it received from the large audience in the senate chamber her heart swelled with pride as she listened to her friend and so important did she think the speech that she had fifty thousand copies printed for distribution to back up mrs stanton's words with concrete evidence of a demand for a change in the law susan presented petitions with ten thousand signatures six thousand asking that married women be granted the right to their wages and four thousand venturing to be recorded for women's suffrage enthusiastic over her albany success she impetuously wrote lucy stone is this not a wonderful time an era long to be remembered although the legislature failed to act on the petitions she knew that her cause had made progress for never before had woman been listened to with such respect and never had newspapers been so friendly she cherished these words of praise from lucy god bless you susan dear for the brave heart that will work on even in the midst of discouragement and lack of helpers everywhere i am telling people what your state is doing and it is worth a great deal to the cause the example of positive action is what we need susan continued her example of positive action this time against the kansas nebraska bill pending in congress which threatened repeal of the missouri compromise by admitting kansas and nebraska as territories with the right to choose for themselves whether they would be slave or free i feel that woman should in the very capital of the nation lift her voice against the abominable measure 
she wrote Lucy Stone, with whom she was corresponding more and more frequently. It is not enough that H. B. Stowe should write. Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin had been published in 1852, and during that year 300,000 copies were sold. With Ernestine Rose, Susan now headed for Washington. These two women had been drawn together by common interests ever since they had met in Syracuse in 1852. Susan was not frightened, as many were, by Ernestine's reputed atheism. She appreciated Ernestine's intelligence, her devotion to women's rights, and her easy eloquence. Conscious of her own limitations as an orator, she recognized her need of Ernestine for the many meetings she planned for the future. As they traveled to Washington together, she learned more about this beautiful, impressive, black-haired Jewess from Poland, who was ten years her senior. The daughter of a rabbi, Ernestine had found the limitations of orthodox religion unbearable for a woman, and had left her home to see and learn more of the world in Prussia, Holland, France, Scotland, and England. She had married an Englishman sympathetic to her liberal views, and together they had come to New York, where she began her career as a lecturer in 1836, when speaking in public branded women immoral. She spoke easily and well on education, women's rights, and the evils of slavery. Her slight foreign accent added charm to her rich musical voice, and before long she was in demand as far west as Ohio and Michigan. With a colleague as experienced as Ernestine, Susan dared arrange for meetings even in the capital of the nation. Washington was tense over the slavery issue when they arrived, and Ernestine's friends warned her not to mention the subject in her lectures. Unheeding, she commented on the Kansas-Nebraska bill, but the press took no notice, and her audiences showed no signs of dissatisfaction. In fact, two comparatively unknown women, billed to lecture on the educational and social rights of women and the political and legal rights of women, attracted little attention in a city accustomed to a blaze of congressional oratory. Hoping to draw larger audiences and to lend dignity to their meetings, Susan asked for the use of the Capitol on Sunday but was refused because Ernestine was not a member of a religious society. Making an attempt for Smithsonian Hall, Ernestine was told it could not risk its reputation by presenting a woman speaker. A failure financially, their Washington venture was rich in experience. Susan took time out for sightseeing, visiting the President's House and Mount Vernon which, to her surprise, she found in a state of dilapidation and decay. The mark of slavery overshadows the whole, she wrote in her diary. Oh, the thought that it was here that he whose name is the pride of this nation 
was the slave master. Again and again in the capital, she listened to heated debates on the Kansas-Nebraska bill, astonished at the eloquence and fervor with which the institution of slavery could be defended. Seeing slavery firsthand, she abhorred it more than ever, and observed with dismay its degenerating influence on master as well as slave. She began to feel that even she herself might be undermined by it almost unwittingly, and confessed to her diary, This noon I ate my dinner without once asking myself, Are these human beings who minister to my wants slaves to be bought and sold and hired out at the will of a master? Even I am getting accustomed to slavery, so much so that I have ceased continually to be made to feel its blighting, cursing influence. A few months later, Susan and Ernestine were in Philadelphia at a National Women's Rights Convention, and when Ernestine was proposed for president, Susan had her first opportunity to champion her new friend. A foreigner and a free thinker, Ernestine encountered a great deal of prejudice, even among liberal reformers, and Susan was surprised at the strength of feeling against her. Impressed during their trip to Washington by Ernestine's essentially fine qualities and her value to the cause, Susan fought for her behind the scenes, insisting that freedom of religion or the freedom to have no religion be observed in women's rights conventions, and she had the satisfaction of seeing Ernestine elected to the office she so richly deserved. Freedom of religion or freedom to have no religion had become for Susan a principle to hold on to, as she listened at these early women's rights meetings to the lengthy, fruitless discussions regarding the lack of scriptural sanction for women's new freedom. Usually, a clergyman appeared on the scene, volubly quoting the Bible to prove that any widening of woman's sphere was contrary to the will of God. But always ready to refute him were Antoinette Brown, now an ordained minister, William Lloyd Garrison, and occasionally Susan herself. To the young Quaker broadened by her Unitarian contacts, and unhampered by creed or theological dogma, such debates were worse than useless. They deepened theological differences, stirred up needless antagonisms, solved no problems, and wasted valuable time. During this convention, she was one of the twenty-four guests in Lucretia Mott's comfortable home at 238 Arch Street. Every meal, with its stimulating discussions, was a convention in itself. Susan's great hero, William Lloyd Garrison, sat at Lucretia's right at the long table in the dining room, Susan on her left, and at the end of each meal, when the little cedar tub filled with hot soapy water was brought in and set before Lucretia so that she could wash the silver, glass, and fine china at the table, Susan dried them on a snowy white towel while the interesting conversation continued. 
There was talk of women's rights, of temperance, and of spiritualism, which was attracting many new converts. There were thrilling stories of the opening of the West and the building of transcontinental railways. But most often, and most earnestly, the discussion turned to the progress of the anti-slavery movement, to the infamous Kansas-Nebraska Bill, to the New England Emigrant Aid Company, which was sending free state settlers to Kansas, to the weakness of the government in playing again and again into the hands of the pro-slavery faction. Most of them saw the country headed toward a vast slave empire, which would embrace Cuba, Mexico, and finally Brazil. And William Lloyd Garrison fervently reiterated his doctrine, no union with slaveholders. Before leaving home, Susan had heard first-hand reports of the bitter, bloody, anti-slavery contest in Kansas from her brother Daniel, who had just returned from a trip to that frontier territory with settlers sent out by the New England Emigrant Aid Company. Now, talking with William Lloyd Garrison, she found herself torn between these two great causes for human freedom, abolition and women's rights, and it was hard for her to decide which cause needed her more. She had not, however, forgotten her unfinished business in New York State. The refusal of the legislature to amend the property laws had doubled her determination to continue circulating petitions until married women's civil rights were finally recognized. It took courage to go alone to towns where she was unknown to arrange for meetings on the unpopular subject of women's rights. Not knowing how she would be received, she found it almost as difficult to return to such towns as Kanajahari, where she had been highly respected as a teacher six years before. In Kanajahari, however, she was greeted affectionately by her uncle, Joshua Reed. He and his friends let her use the Methodist Church for her lecture, and when the trustees of the academy urged her to return there to teach, Uncle Joshua interrupted with a vehement no, protesting that others could teach, but it was Susan's work to go around and set people thinking about the laws. Returning to the scene of her girlhood in Battenville and Easton, visiting her sisters Guelma and Hannah, and meeting many of her old friends, Susan realized as never before how completely she had outgrown her old environment. In her enthusiasm for her new work, she exposed many of her heresies, and when her friends labeled William Lloyd Garrison an agnostic and rabble-rouser, she protested that he was the most Christ-like man she had ever known. Thus it is belief, not Christian benevolence she confided to her diary in 1854, that is made the modern test of Christianity. After eight strenuous months away from home, she was welcomed warmly by a family who believed in her work. She found abolition uppermost in everyone's mind. Her brother Merritt, fired by Daniel's tales of the West and the anti-slavery struggle in Kansas, 
was impatient to join the settlers there and could talk of nothing else while he poured out the latest news about kansas he and a cousin mary luther helped susan fold handbills for future women's rights meetings susan listened eagerly and approvingly as he told of the seven hundred and fifty free state settlers who during the past summer had gone out to kansas traveling up the missouri on steamboats and over lonely trails in wagons marked kansas most of them were not abolitionists but men who wanted kansas a free labor state which they could develop with their own hard work she heard of the ruthless treatment these yankee settlers faced from the pro-slavery missourians who wanted kansas in the slavery block there was bloodshed and there would be more john brown's sons had written from kansas send us guns we need them more than bread merritt was ready and eager to join john brown the anthony family was virtually a hotbed of insurrection with merritt planning resistance in kansas and susan reform in new york susan mapped out an ambitious itinerary hoping to canvass with her petitions every county in the state with her father as security she borrowed money to print her handbills and notices and then wrote wendell phillips asking if any money for a woman's rights campaign had been raised by the last national convention he replied with his own personal check for fifty dollars his generosity and confidence touched her deeply for already he had become a hero to her second only to william lloyd garrison this tall handsome intellectual a graduate of harvard and an unsurpassed orator had forfeited friends social position and a promising career as a lawyer to plead for the slave he was also one of the very few men who sympathized with and aided the women's rights cause Horace Greeley, too, proved at this time to be a good friend, writing, I have your letter and your program, friend Susan. I will publish the latter and all of our editions, but return your dollars. Her earnestness and ability made a great appeal to these men. They marveled at her industry. Thirty-four years old now, not handsome but wholesome, simply and neatly dressed her brown hair smoothly parted and brought down over her ears she had nothing of the scatter-brained impulsive reformer about her and no coquetry she was practical and intelligent and men liked to discuss their work with her william henry channing admiring her executive ability and her plucky reaction to defeat dubbed her the Napoleon of the women's rights movement. Parker Pillsbury, the fiery abolitionist from New Hampshire, broad-shouldered, dark-bearded, with blazing eyes and almost fanatical zeal, had become her devoted friend. He liked nothing better than to tease her about her idleness and pretend to be in search of more work for her to do so impatient was susan to begin her new york state campaign that she left home on christmas day 
to hold her first meeting on December 26, 1854, at Mayville in Chautauqua County. The weather was cold and damp, but the four pounds of candles which she had bought to light the courthouse flickered cheerily while the small, curious audience gathered from several nearby towns listened to the first woman most of them had ever heard speak in public she would be they reckoned worth hearing at least once travelling from town to town she held meetings every other night usually the postmasters or sheriffs posted her notices in the town square and gave them to the newspapers and to the ministers to announce in their churches even in a hostile community, she almost always found a gallant, fair-minded man to come to her aid, such as the hotel proprietor who offered his dining-room for her meetings when the courthouse, schoolhouse, and churches were closed to her, or the group of men who, when the ministers refused to announce her meetings, struck off handbills which they distributed at the church doors at the close of the services. The newspapers, too, were generally friendly. As men were the voters with power to change the laws, she aimed to attract them to her evening meetings, and usually they came, seeking diversion, and listened respectfully. Some of them scoffed, others condemned her for undermining the home, but many found her reasoning logical, and by their questions put life into the meetings a few even encouraged their wives to enlist in the cause the women on the other hand were timid or indifferent although she pointed out to them the way to win the legal right to their earnings and their children it was difficult to find among them a rebellious spirit brave enough to head a woman's rights society susan b anthony is in town wrote young caroline coles a canadago schoolgirl in her diary at this time she made a special request that all seminary girls should come to hear her as well as all the women and girls in town she had a large audience and she talked very plainly about our rights and how we ought to stand up for them and said the world would never go right until the women had just as much right to vote and rule as the men when i told grandmother about it she said she guessed susan b anthony had forgotten that st paul said women should keep silence i told her no she didn't for she spoke particularly about st paul and said if he had lived in these times he would have been as anxious to have women at the head of the government as she was i could not make grandmother agree with her at all Many of the towns Susan visited were not on a railroad. Often, after a long, cold sleigh ride, she slept in a hotel room without a fire. In the morning, she might have to break the ice in the pitcher to take the cold sponge bath, which nothing could induce her to omit since she had begun to follow the water cure, a new therapeutic method then in vogue. For a time, Ernestine Rose came to her aid and it was a relief to turn over the meetings to such an accomplished speaker. But for the most part, Susan braved it alone. 
steadily adding names to her petitions and leaving behind the leaflets which elizabeth stanton had written she aroused a glimmer of interest in a new valuation of women on the stage-coach leaving lake george on a particularly cold day she found to her surprise a wealthy quaker whom she had met at the albany convention so solicitous of her comfort that he placed heated planks under her feet making the long ride much more bearable he turned up again this time with his own sleigh at the close of one of her meetings in northern new york and wrapped in fur robes she drove with him behind spirited gray horses to his sister's home to stay over sunday and then to all her meetings in the neighborhood it was pleasant to be looked after and to travel in comfort and she enjoyed his company but when he urged her to give up the hard life of a reformer to become his wife there was no hesitation on her part she had dedicated her life to freeing women and negroes and there could be no turning aside if she ever married it must be to a man who would encourage her work for humanity a great man like wendell phillips or a reformer like parker pillsbury returning home in may eighteen fifty five she took stock of her accomplishments she had canvassed fifty-four counties and sold twenty thousand tracts her expenses had been two thousand two hundred and ninety-one dollars and she had paid her way by selling tracts and by a small admission charge for her meetings she even had seventy dollars over and above all expenses she promptly repaid the fifty dollars which wendell phillips had advanced but he returned it for her next campaign however her heart quailed at the prospect of another such winter as she recalled the long bitter cold days of travel and the indifference of the women she was trying to help even the unfailing praise of her family and of elizabeth stanton even the kindness and interest of the new friends she made paled into insignificance before the thought of another lone crusade she was exhausted and suffering with rheumatic pains and yet she would not rest but prepared for an ambitious convention at saratoga springs then the fashionable summer resort of the east she had braved the center of fashion and frivolity the year before with her message of women's rights and to her great surprise crowds seeking entertainment had come to her meetings their admission fees and their purchase of tracts making the venture a financial success here was fertile ground susan was counting on lucy stone and antoinette brown to help her for elizabeth stanton then expecting her sixth baby was out of the picture now to her dismay lucy and antoinette married the blackwell brothers henry and samuel fearing that they too like elizabeth stanton would be tied down with babies and household cares susan saw a bleak lonely road ahead for the women's rights movement she did so want her best speakers and most valuable workers to remain single until the spade work for women's rights was done 
almost in a panic at the prospect of being left to carry on the saratoga convention alone susan wrote lucy irritable letters instead of praising her for drawing up a marriage contract and keeping her own name later however she realized what it had meant for lucy to keep her own name and then she wrote her i am more and more rejoiced that you have declared by actual doing that a woman has a name and may retain it all through her life so persistently did she now pursue lucy and antoinette that they both kept their promise to speak at the saratoga convention lucy travelling all the way from cincinnati where she was visiting in the blackwell home lucy was loudly cheered by a large audience eager to see this young woman whose marriage had attracted so much notice in the press in fact lucy stone who had kept her own name and who with her husband had signed a marriage protest against the legal disabilities of a married woman was as much of a novelty in this fashionable circle as one of barnum's high-priced curiosities pleased at lucy's reception susan surveyed the audience hopefully handsome men in nankeen trousers red waistcoats white neckcloths and gray swallowtail coats sitting beside beautiful young women wearing gowns of bombazine and watered silk with wide hoop skirts and elaborately trimmed bonnets which set off their curls to her delight they also applauded antoinette brown blackwell the first woman minister they had ever seen and ernestine rose with her appealing foreign accent they clapped loudly when she herself asked them to buy tracts and contribute to the work complimentary as this was she did not flatter herself that they had endorsed women's rights that they had come to her meetings in large numbers while vacationing in saratoga springs this was important in some a spark of understanding glowed and this spark would light others they came from the south from the west and from the large cities of the east there were railroad magnates among them rich merchants manufacturers and politicians charles f hovey the wealthy boston dry goods merchant listened attentively to every word and in the years that followed became a generous contributor to the cause realizing how very tired she was and that she must feel more physically fit before continuing her work susan decided to take the water cure at her cousin seth rogers hydropathic institute in worcester massachusetts this well-known sanatorium prescribed water internally and externally as a remedy for all kinds of ailments and in an age when meals were over hearty baths infrequent and clothing tight and confining the drinking of water tub baths showers and wet packs had enthusiastic advocates the soothing baths relaxed susan and the leisure to read refreshed and strengthened her she read one after another carlyle's sartor resartus george sand's consuelo madame de stal's corinne then francis writes a few days in athens 
and Mrs. Gaskell's Life of Charlotte Bronte, making notes in her diary, 1855, of passages she particularly liked. She discussed current events with her cousin Seth on long drives in the country, finding him a delightful companion, well-read, understanding, and interested in people and causes. He took her to her first political meeting, where she was the only woman present and had a seat on the platform. It was one of the first rallies of the new Republican Party, which had developed among rebellious northern Whigs, Free Soilers, and anti-Nebraska Democrats who opposed the extension of slavery. After listening to the speakers, among them Charles Sumner, she drew these conclusions. Had the accident of birth given me place among the aristocracy of sex, I doubt not I should be an active, zealous advocate of republicanism, unless, perchance, I had received that higher, holier light which would have lifted me to the sublime height where now stand Garrison, Phillips, and all that small band whose motto is no union with slaveholders. After listening to the satisfying sermons of Thomas Wentworth Higginson at his free church in Worcester, she wrote in her diary, It is plain to me now that it is not sitting under preaching I dislike, but the fact that most of it is not of a stamp that my soul can respond to. In September she interrupted the cure to attend a woman's rights meeting in Boston and with Lucy Stone, Antoinette, and Ellen Blackwell, visited in the home of the wealthy merchant, Francis Jackson, making many new friends, among them his daughter, Eliza J. Eddy, whose unhappy marriage was to prove a blessing to the woman's rights cause. At tea at the garrisons, she met many of the distinguished men and women she had worshipped from afar she heard theodore parker preach a sermon which filled her soul and with mr garrison called on him in his famous library it really seemed audacious in me to be ushered into such a presence and on such a commonplace errand as to ask him to come to rochester to speak in a course of lectures i am planning she wrote her family but he received me with such kindness and simplicity that the awe i felt on entering was soon dissipated i then called on wendell phillips in his sanctum for the same purpose i have invited ralph waldo emerson by letter and all three have promised to come in the evening with mr jackson's son james ellen blackwell and i went to see hamlet in spite of my Quaker training, I find I enjoy all these worldly amusements intensely. In January 1856, Susan set out again on a woman's rights tour of New York State to gather more signatures for her petitions. This time she persuaded Francis D. Gage of Ohio, a temperance worker and popular author of children's stories, to join her. An easy, extemporaneous speaker, Mrs. Gage was an attraction to offer audiences, who drove eight or more miles to hear her. 
and in the cheerless hotels at night and on the long cold sleigh rides from town to town she was a congenial companion the winter was even colder and snowier than that of the year before no trains running susan wrote her family and we had a thirty-six mile ride in a sleigh just emerged from a long line of snowdrifts and stopped at this little country tavern supped and am now roasting over the hot stove confronted almost daily with glaring examples of the injustices women suffered under the property laws she was more than ever convinced that her work was worthwhile we stopped at a little tavern where the landlady was not yet twenty and had a baby fifteen months old she reported her supper dishes were not washed and her baby was crying she rocked the little thing to sleep washed the dishes and got our supper beautiful white bread butter cheese pickles apple and mince pie and excellent peach preserves she gave us her warm room to sleep in she prepared a six o'clock breakfast for us fried pork mashed potatoes mince pie and for me at my special request a plate of sweet baked apples and a pitcher of rich milk when we came to pay our bill the dolt of a husband took the money and put it in his pocket he had not lifted a finger to lighten that woman's burdens yet the law gives him the right to every dollar she earns and when she needs two cents to buy a darning needle she has to ask him and explain what she wants it for when after a few weeks mrs gage was called home by illness in her family susan appealed hopefully to lucretia mott's sister martha c wright in auburn new york you can speak so much better so much more wisely so much more everything than i can then she added i should like a particular effort made to call out the teachers the sewing women the working women generally can't you write something for your papers that will make them feel that it is for them that we work more than for the wives and daughters of the rich mrs wright however could help only in auburn and susan was obliged to continue her scheduled meetings alone she interrupted them only to present her petitions to the legislature the response of the legislature to her two years of hard work was a sarcastic wholly irrelevant report issued by the judiciary committee some weeks later to a senate roaring with laughter in the albany register susan read with mounting indignation portions of this infuriating report the ladies always have the best places and the choicest tidbit at the table they have the best seats in cars carriages and sleighs the warmest place in winter the coolest in summer they have their choice on which side of the bed they will lie front or back a lady's dress costs three times as much as that of a gentleman and at the present time with the prevailing fashion one lady occupies three times as much space in the world as a gentleman it has thus appeared to the married gentlemen of your committee being a majority 
that if there is any inequality or oppression in the case, the gentlemen are the sufferers. They, however, have presented no petitions for redress, having doubtless made up their minds to yield to an inevitable destiny. Why, Susan wondered sadly, were women's rights only a joke to most men? something to be laughed at even in the face of glaring proofs of the law's injustice there was encouragement however in the letters which now came from lucy stone in ohio hurrah susan last week this state legislature passed a law giving wives equal property rights and to mothers equal baby rights with fathers so much is gained the petitions which I set on foot in Wisconsin for suffrage have been presented, made a rousing discussion, and then were tabled with three men to defend them. In Nebraska, too, the bill for suffrage passed the House. The world moves. The world was moving in Great Britain as well, for as Susan read in her newspaper, Women there were petitioning Parliament for married women's property rights, and among the petitioners were her well-beloved Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Harriet Martineau, Mrs. Gaskell, and Charlotte Cushman. Better still, Harriet Taylor, inspired by the example of women's rights conventions in America, had written for the Westminster Review an article advocating the enfranchisement of women. All this reassured Susan, even if New York legislators laughed at her efforts. End of chapter 4